Okay, let's pray as we... Oh, there we go. As we turn to Acts chapter 4. Okay, we're in Bible class. Congratulations for being here. These little windows of opportunity and study in our life. Uh, The Holy Spirit is our teacher and he quickens us and, and ministers to us and puts truths in, in our hearts and teaches us. And this is how we learn the Bible, not by accident, but by purpose to study and, and taking this time. It's a sacrifice, but it's an eternal investment. So, so let's, um, let's pray. So, Father, we thank you tonight. Thank you, Lord. We thank you afresh for this opportunity on a, on a Wednesday night to come out together and to open your word and our hearts before you tonight. And we just take a moment to praise you and thank you for your work in building the church, your work in and through the church. And we pray for tonight and as we study this book week by week, that you would stir our hearts and you would use this class greatly directly in our lives and indirectly in the church and the community. And, and we just ask you to bless this time together now. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> amen. Acts, Acts uh, chapter 4. And first of all, we just have a quick review. We're in chapter 4. We remember the first chapter, the ascension. Um, the, the choosing of a new apostle, being told to wait for the Holy Spirit. Um, and then chapter 2, the Holy Spirit coming, the birth of the church, the supernatural gift of languages, setting the stage for Peter to preach, and 3,000 being saved, chapter 2. Chapter 3, we studied last week, the, the miracle of the lame man who was... Uh, over 40 years old, been laid at the the gate uh, for for years, miraculously healed. Again, Peter preaches, the main spokesman in these early chapters, and this time 5,000 are saved. And then tonight, chapter 4, we're going to see the first persecution uh, of the church, and of course that that grows and continues uh, through the book. So after this incredible miracle an undeniable miracle for all of those who had seen this lame man, and there he was, Exhibit A, standing right in front of them. There wasn't much they could say. Um, What was the response? Well, we can see from uh, the beginning of chapter 4 that 5,000 people get saved. Um, An incredible response to the preaching and the gospel. Again, an incredible work of the Spirit of God. But the Jewish leaders, although there were thousands that responded, the leaders representing the nation of Israel, certainly at this point, just as with, with, uh, with Christ being, Jesus being rejected as the Messiah, at this point the Jewish leaders not responding, but in, instead actually taking the, the two apostles, Peter and John, to, to hold overnight in prison and then they stand before the Sanhedrin. This is similar to... Um, uh, we'll see in, in Acts chapter 7, or we could say all through the Gospels with Christ and, and the opposition of the Jewish leaders. But in Acts 7, we'll see the same thing when Stephen 
is preaching. And in, in Acts, in verse 51, he says, Oh, you stiff-necked people, and you continually resist the Holy Spirit as, as did your fathers. And they are, that, that's a very insightful verse. It tells us, as Stephen was preaching, and we could assume as Peter is preaching here, the Holy Spirit is certainly speaking and working, but there's a resistance in the heart of, uh, of those who see and hear uh, what God is doing. So that here we're going to see the beginning of the first persecution in the church. 5,000 get saved, but the beginning of the persecution. We're going to see it here in, in Acts uh, chapter 4. Peter and John uh, are arrested after this event. We'll see together tonight. They're taken before the Sanhedrin. Um, then they're just threatened and they're let go. In the next chapter, chapter 5, we see the apostles, all of them imprisoned. This time they're beaten and released. Um, We'll also see Stephen stand before the council, the same council, before he's stoned to death. In Acts chapter 8, Saul, who of course will become the apostle Paul, is leading the persecution in Jerusalem and out to Damascus. Then chapter 12, it really culminates with the death of James. That's the first of the apostles that's martyred. And then even from chapter 13 on through Paul's missionary journeys, all the way through we see opposition and and persecution um, as we go through the book. So uh, there's a series of events that work up in this persecution right up to Stephen's stoning and the the, uh, death of James. At this point, the church, again, remember, is only weeks old. Many new believers. Um, and we see the first expression of, of spiritual warfare and uh, seen in, in persecution. And as we think about church history, of course, we see it here at the beginning of the church, the beginning of the persecution through the book of Acts and on. In the beginning here, they're being persecuted by the Jewish believers are being persecuted by the Jewish unbelievers, particularly the leaders of, the, uh, of, the, of Judaism at the time. But up fo- this is followed by Roman persecution through the following centuries, starting with Nero. Um, during the Roman era, there are 10 main uh, uh, emperors recognized that really targeting and persecuting the Christians, particularly starting with Nero, under whom... Uh, Paul will eventually be beheaded. Uh, Extra-biblical historical sources tell us that he was beheaded under Nero. And that persecution follows all through the church age up until Constantine in 313. And that's when Christianity became the the legal state religion. And then the the persecution eased off. But we... um, But even today, we could think about uh, the persecutions that are taking place today. Um, In 2016, uh, approximately 90,000 Christians are killed for their faith around the world. Statistics are showing in the last few few years, it's been on an increase. And if you look at the map there, you can see the Middle East and northern countries in Africa and different regions where there's incredible persecution, North Korea and different places to be considered. Uh, your life is in danger to be profess you're a Christian in those places. And we pray for the persecuted church around the world often. So, Acts chapter 4, we remember it for the beginning, the seeds of persecution being seen. 
uh, at least in the book of Acts. Of course, we've already seen it in the Gospels. And they're meeting, of course, house to house. They have fellowship, but particularly we see them in these early days. They're also meeting around the temple. We mentioned Solomon's porch right after this miracle where the pe- people were gathered, where Peter is preaching. It was at um, Solomon's, Solomon's porch. Let's jump to the text, verse 1. So as they spoke to the people, remember the miracle has happened, Peter and John, they're preaching to the people. They're all have been gathered in, in this region, on this side. Solomon's porch is over here, so there's room for thousands and thousands of people to gather. It's a huge area. And um, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. As they spoke to the people, again, who? John and Peter. Peter's the main spokesman, but at this time, they're both speaking to the people. They're both um, sharing about the Messiah. Um, How much time has passed? Well, we know that when they first came to the temple, it was three. And in a few verses, it's going to tell us they're locked up in the evening. So probably about three hours have gone by since the miracle uh, um, and the preaching and the salvations, about three hours have gone by. And what are they talking about as they, uh, as they spoke to the people? If, if the miracle happened and then they're preaching, they're speaking to the people, they could have had an hour, a couple of hours before these before the temple authorities came. We don't know exactly, but what are they speaking about? We've got the message recorded, but the conversation continues. And of course, they're just expounding, speaking about the Messiah, his death, his resurrection, salvation, um, the prophecies that are fulfilled. Um, They're talking about uh, the offer of salvation. So then the authorities come. The priests are mentioned Uh, The priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. The priests, there were 24 different groups of priests across the land, and each group would take a turn in officiating the the rituals and and ceremonies related to the temple. So this was the group at this particular time that had their two weeks in the year to work in the temple. The captain, according to the Talmud, the Jewish writings called the Sagan, was the second in authority only under the high priest. And he was basically the head of the temple police to make sure everything was, was running smoothly. Um, and the Sadducees, this was a religious party. They basically ran the entire temple operation. They were Levitical priests, uh, and the, the, the priests worked under their leadership. Um, they did not believe they only believed that the uh, Pentateuch was inspired. They struggled and resisted believing other parts of the Old Testament were actually inspired. Um, they didn't believe in angels or spirits or the resurrection. Uh, that's why they're called Sadducees, because it's sad, you see, that they don't believe. Sorry, okay, can't resist that joke every time. Okay, verse 2. Being greatly disturbed, and this is a very strong word in the Greek, This is the same word that when Paul saw the demonized girl in Acts 16, he saw this girl who was able to recognize that they were servants of the Most High God, and she was calling things out, and it says that Paul being greatly disturbed, this is the word, when they saw Peter and John preaching and all of the people, and imagine the stir and the, the atmosphere there, and the rejoicing, all these people getting saved, when they came, they were incredibly disturbed by what they saw. 
they were disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. First of all, they were disturbed just because they were teaching the people when that was really the scribes and the, sorry, the priests and the Sadducees who should have been doing that. Who are you to be teaching all of these people like this? Secondly, that they preached Jesus. Um, Remember, some of these priests and Sadducees would have been perhaps on the Sanhedrin before which Christ even stood and was condemned to death. To preach Jesus was going completely against what they had already confirmed, that Jesus was a false Messiah, etc. He'd gone to the cross. It was completely against everything that they stood for. And not only that, they were doing it in, the very, in, their, in their own temple that they were overseeing. Uh, uh, and then lastly, that, that through Jesus, they were preaching the resurrection. Again, the Sadducees particularly had a problem with that because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Verse 3, And they laid their hands on them, not for prayer, but they seized them, they got a hold of them, they dragged them to, to, to custody or jail until the next day, for it was already evening. They had to remove these two apostles, these two men, um, and this is the first uh, resistance or persecution we see. We're going to see a lot echoed through the book. Chapter, verse 4. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Many believed, simply believed. And here we see they're added to the church. Um, And in persecution, we always look for the however. There was resistance and persecution. However, people get saved. And you see that even when the enemy comes up against the work of God. Remember Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will come against the church but will not prevail. There will still be fruit. It's said that the, the, um, the seed of the church is the blood of the martyrs. It's a phrase that basically means that even though many people are martyred and persecuting, the church grows through that under persecution. So we see the however there 5,000. But this is the last time that, uh, that, that the number or the amount of converts is, is mentioned. Just Acts 2 and Acts 3, we see 3,000 and 5,000. After this and all through the epistles, the numbers of the church are not mentioned. We don't know how many were in the church of Rome or church of Philippi or, because the numbers primarily are not the issue. Uh, man would make more of an issue about the numbers Uh, But that's not the primary issue with the work of God. Although we hope, we pray for many to be saved, but but, uh, that's not the primary focus, how many people. Verse 5 and 6, And it came to pass on the next day, and there's quite a list here, the rulers, their rulers, elders, scribes, also Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, some names we'll recognize here from the Gospels, John and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. Um, These are the officials, the officers. These are the people of power. These are known as the Sanhedrin, um, which which, uh, was a group of um, uh, officials connected to the temple and leaders in Judaism who would really like the supreme, the Jewish supreme court of the land. This was the highest court you could stand before as a, as a religious Jew or as a Jew. 
And uh, this is the same council, when you read that phrase council in the Gospels, and they brought Jesus before the council. It's speaking of the Sanhedrin. It was made up of 70 men, plus one, who was the high priest, the highest ranking official there, and then 70 men. And they would gather in a room in a large uh, circle and put the accused right in the middle and then fire questions and accusations against him. We've We've uh, read in the Gospels and we've seen in the movies and the, and the pictures of how Christ was led in before the council and they're all surrounding him and the high priest and others are asking the questions. That's the Sanhedrin. That's where Peter and John are, are going to be brought before. So who's there? It tells us the rulers, the elders, the scribes, Annas the high priest. Now, Annas was actually the ex-high priest, but still recognized to have an office a little bit like American presidents. You still call them Mr. President, even though there's a new president. The new high priest was Caiaphas, his father-in-law. Annas had married Caiaphas's daughter, and Annas uh, um, uh, was the, was the uh, Caiaphas was actually the current high priest. I might have got that mixed up. You understand what I'm saying? So Caiaphas was the current high priest, the 71st member. And Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas. I don't know if I said that the wrong way around. Okay, and then John and Alexander and many others that were family of the high priest, high priestly family. So this is the audience of the Sanhedrin. It's quite, quite a setting. And if you would ask the question, by the way, how would these high-profile men ever come to hear the gospel? There's really only one way that you would be arrested and you would be brought before them and you would be able to plead your case. So one thing that's happening here is all of these Sanhedrin uh, for another time are going to hear the gospel crystal clear because Peter does not pack any punches here. He gets right to the gospel just like he did in the previous chapter. Um, But even circumstances where it looks as though they end up in jail. It happens again in Acts 16 in Philippi. Remember, they're in jail. But even that, the jailer gets saved, his family gets saved. Um, uh, even Paul, when he's a prisoner in Rome, when he writes the book of Philippians, which is called the prison epistle because he wrote it from prison, he writes there in chapter 1, I, I, he said, I want you to know, brethren, that the things that have happened to me have fallen out for the furtherance of the gospel. So even those things, and we think of the persecuted church around the world today, and all of the things that are happening and have happened through church history are are circumstances that God can work that together for the furtherance of the gospel, as he so often does. There's going to be uh, four times in the book of Acts where we're going to see apostles who are brought before, uh, who are going to be brought before uh, the Sanhedrin. This time here, Peter and John, In the next chapter, we'll see Peter and the apostles. In chapter 6, Stephen is also brought before the Sanhedrin. And then finally, Paul uh, himself is going to be brought before the Sanhedrin as well. Verse 7. This is a picture from a very, very old encyclopedia uh, with with an image of the Sanhedrin set up. And when they had set them in the midst in the middle of the the circle of men, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Two questions there. So they put Peter and John right in the middle 
just as they had done Christ or anyone that's brought in, in, in an accused. And um, uh, these men, by the way, most of them, if, unless there'd been some changes, but these men, as far as we know, would have all remembered when, when Christ was brought before them. That was, that was quite, quite an event. And they're going to hear his name and hear that he's resurrected and everything from the mouth of the apostles now. So the Sanhedrin normally met in a hall that was joined to the temple. It was known as the Chamber of Cut Stone or Hewn Stone. And they asked these questions. It was a quite a, um, a shrewd question because in the law, in the book of Deuteronomy, I think it's 13, it says, if anyone would ever teach or preach to you about any other gods other than the Lord, they should be put to death. So they're saying... By what power, what authority do you do this? It's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a trick-searching question there. And verse 8, And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Well, that's, that's an important statement, isn't it? It's really saying something there. We're just only a short time after Acts 2. This is a different era. This is something different. We see an incredible... Um, uh, change that's happening here in the, in the lives of the apostles. We're going to see Peter, who is so quick to deny the Lord, now is so quick to defend him and to preach Christ with incredible boldness and confidence. So Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, what a group he's standing before. Again, these amazing religious rulers. You probably could not imagine a more intimidating audience at this time to stand before. And you're really going to be wanting the Holy Spirit to be with you at that time. Remember, um, Jesus had told the apostles, you will be persecuted. It's going to happen. In, In Matthew 10, 17 through 20, it says, Jesus says, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils. That's exactly what's happening here and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Again, in that verse we see this is a testimony to them and also to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. So when we read those words, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, you think of what Christ said. In that hour, in this moment, God was giving Peter the words to say, the, the, the Father and the Spirit. Um, verse 9 and 10. What does, he, what does he say? He starts off by saying, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to this helpless man, by what means he has been made well? That's his first point. He says, so let's get it straight. Why are we here? Because this this man who has been lame for all of these years has now been made whole and he's healed? Is Is that really the problem? Right? It's kind of like when Jesus would heal on the Sabbath. Uh for that purpose, to really just provoke. Like, really, are we, are we, we have a problem with this because it's on the Sabbath day. Do you realize this man has been made whole? You know, 
So he says that first of all, look at this man, he's been made whole. Is this, is this what the problem is? Just to remind you, you are calling us to this tribunal, to this, to this, in this place, because this man, and by the way, it appears that they had brought the man in uh, to the assembly, because a couple of times it mentions this man, and it says the man standing there. So he was right there, right even in, with the Sanhedrin. And then he says, let it be known to you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man, stands here before you whole. Wow. It's very obvious that it's Peter's intent, and of course the Holy Spirit's intent, that their conscience would be pricked that it would be, he's making it crystal clear. You, it's a, it's a very clear statement. You crucified him. And by the way, in, in, when we read this in the English, we might often lose sight of this. But remember, Jesus Christ is not a name. It's a title. Christ is the word for Messiah. He's saying, Jesus, the Messiah, who you crucified, you crucified the Messiah. For a Jewish ear, particularly the leaders of Judaism at the time, to hear that accusation could be nothing more pointed than that. You crucified the Holy One, the Messiah, as as he used in the message in chapter 3, the the just one, the prince, the Holy One, the Messiah. You crucified him. He said the same to the people in the previous chapter. You want to know who healed this man, by what power this man is healed? Let me spell it out for you. Jesus Christ. Maybe he slowed right down and raised his voice. Really made the point. You want to know who? Jesus, the Christ. You crucified. He lays the guilt of Jesus' death right at their feet. And he also gives witness, of course, immediately in the same breath and sentence to the resurrection whom you crucified, whom God raised. Um, again, Acts 1.8 is in, is in the back of our mind. When the, when the Spirit comes, you will receive power and be witnesses unto me. That's what's happening here. Peter, the incredible demonstration of that. Filled with the Holy Spirit is a witness to the resurrected Christ. He says, whom God raised from the dead. Again, the resurrection, the centerpiece of every message is mentioned in, through the book of Acts. Uh, it's, it's one thing, of course, that he died on the cross for the sins of the world, um, but the, it's not the complete gospel without the resurrection. Um, that This man stands here before you whole. It's by the power of Jesus. Verse 11. And then he says, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And he's actually quoting here right out of Psalm 118. You may remember from Sunday's sermon, we mentioned how at the end of the Seder meal on the Passover, they would sing the Hallel Psalms. 113 to 118 would have been the last psalm that they sang every Passover They were often singing through the Halal Psalms, the Hallelujah Psalms. And 
This is a, a very potent messianic psalm. And he takes this phrase right out of that messianic psalm. And he quotes this, the stone which the builders, notice though when he's speaking to them, he says, you builders. He's saying, you know Psalm 118 speaks about the builders? It's you guys. And instead of recognizing the stone, you rejected the stone. But now that same stone has become the head of the corner or the chief cornerstone. The rest of the psalm goes on to say, this was the Lord's doing. It was marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. And look at this. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that phrase is a phrase that is is to be said in the recognition of the coming of the Messiah. There were some of the Lord's disciples that said that when he came into Jerusalem that day. Um, And when he returns a second time at the end of the tribulation period, remember he said at the Last Supper, he said to his disciples, was it the Last Supper? Uh, I think it might be, but anyway. uh, Where he says um, something along the lines, I will not see you again until it is said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's something that will precede his coming. So Peter takes this phrase here, to say that they've rejected the chief cornerstone. Verse 12, nor is there salvation in any other uh, name, no other name under heaven given among men which, by which you must be saved. Now this is heresy for him to say this. This is incredible for him to say this. Not only was Jesus the Messiah, the one whom you crucified, the one who is raised again, Not only now is he made the chief cornerstone, the one that you rejected, but through him is the only means of salvation. But of course, um, they could not hear that. They could not accept that. This is a a verse that some people may struggle with, along with John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man can come to the Father except through me. It's very exclusive. And some people say, oh, well, Christianity is so narrow, so exclusive. It says that Christianity is the only way that someone can get saved. And we would say yes. Um, truth, by very definition, must exclude error. You can't have two things that are absolute truths if they are in contradiction to one another. Right? So... No name except the name of Christ by which you can be saved. Verse 13, their response. Now when he saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and untrained men, they marveled. This is the first thing. When they saw the boldness, they saw something. They recognized something. Um, This wouldn't have been the usual Um, opening defense they would have from someone with this boldness, this clarity, this wisdom, this accusation. It was as if they were the ones on trial. Peter, this Galilean, this uneducated fisherman from up north, standing there in the high courts of Jerusalem, putting the Sanhedrin on trial. Imagine. 
You crucified him. And he's the only one by which anyone can be saved. When they saw this boldness, they were amazed. These are the wealthiest, most intellectual, most powerful men in the land. Remember, this is the same Peter, again, who denied the Lord. He was challenged in the courtyard, and so quickly his faith buckled. So quickly he, he stumbled through the words and denied the Lord, the one that he had believed on and followed for those three years. In that hour of trial, that, those moments around the campfire, etc., he, he was quick to deny the Lord and went out so broken as the cock crowed and it echoed into the night and he went out and wept bitterly, remembering the words of the Lord. This is different. Seems like a different man completely, doesn't it? And it says there that they realized that they had been with Jesus. And the tense here gives the impression almost like one by one there was a realization that swept around the Sanhedrin when they saw the boldness. Perhaps it reminded them of, of, of the encounter with the Lord. I don't know. But they made a connection realizing that, that they had been with Jesus. Um... Peter here, filled with the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, again, the same court that Jesus himself had been condemned in. So Peter, when he's saying this, he, he knows that Jesus was on trial here. He knows that Jesus was condemned by this very council. And G Peter is putting his own life right on the line here. And he's doing it by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> There's a few misconceptions here that the, the Sanhedrin's are, the, the council is having. One misconception is they say they realize they had been with Jesus. One, one alter, alteration to that we would make is that they still were with Jesus. He was right there with them. His presence, his ministry, his power. Verse 14, And seeing the man who had been healed, there it is, standing with them, they could say nothing against it. What would they say? The guy standing right there, probably smiling. <laughs> yeah, probably. What do they say? He's right there. Yeah, I'm the, I was the guy who was crippled, lame, disabled, me, healed, Woo, jumping around. What can they say? There's nothing they can say against it. The proof was there right in front of them. Undeniable evidence. And yet, they would still reject the truth that that evidence is clearly putting before them. Peter is saying, you want to know who healed this man? I'll tell you, it's Jesus Christ. And there's the healed man, and yet they will still not embrace or believe the truth. Verse 15 and when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, a notable miracle has been done through them. It's evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. You can sense that there is, there is no integrity there, no, no, no honesty, no humility there wanting to stand their ground 
despite, again, they're resisting the Holy Spirit. It's obviously an incredible anointing there, pricking the conscience, speaking to the heart. The lame man is, is now standing there healed in front of them, and they know it's an undeniable miracle, and their conclusion is, how can we get out of this? What can we do to, to these men? Verse 17. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they should speak to no man in this name. This is as far as they could go right now. This is all we can do. Okay, we can't kill them because the people, they're in favor with the people. We can't deny the miracle. What are we going to say? No, he's not walking. So let's just threaten them. But if they ever speak in the name of Jesus again, we'll do something. Verse 18, So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. And here's Peter's and John's response. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. Good answer, isn't it? Listen, guys, what would you do if you were us? We know what we've decided to do, and we cannot, we cannot deny what we know to be true, what we've seen, what we've heard, what we've witnessed. We are witnesses of the resurrected Christ. We walked with him for three years. We saw him for over 40 days after the cross, resurrected. We ate with him. He spoke to us. He taught us. And now you would tell us we cannot preach in his name when the Spirit of God and the Lord himself commissioned us very for that very purpose? You can't do that. You tell us, should we obey you or God? You holy men of God, you tell us, should we obey you or obey God? Verse 21, 22. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Again, that's put in there for an emphasis uh, on, on how powerful this miracle was. Again, states the age, how long the man had been there. He's been healed. So they were let go. What a day. Hey, let's go up to the temple for the third hour of prayer. Boy, they didn't know what was going to be ahead of them that day. What a day. The miracle, the conversions, being dragged before the Sanhedrin, the Holy Spirit, giving those words to, to Peter, the boldness of even putting an accusation to the Sanhedrin, the same ones that condemned Christ, and then threatened, and then, okay, go. They find themselves on the street. Okay, let's go find the others and tell them what happened. So that's what they do. Being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. Can you imagine that? What, a, what an assembly that would have been. Listen, 
have we got a story to tell you, you guys? Really, what happened? John, go ahead. No, no, Peter, you go ahead. And they, they, they tell the story. Can you imagine the amazement uh, of just, w- wait a minute. You said that before the Sanhedrin? And John's like, yeah, I know. I was thinking, what is he saying? And he, he said, you crucified him. And just the, the wonder of what just took place, incredible. But they could not deny what they had seen, what they had heard. They were under the unction of the Spirit of God. And that's, a, that's something that perhaps you and I don't really have to face as a challenge. But there are persecuted, the persecuted church and Christians around the world who really are put in that situation a lot. You, you, where they are forbidden to meet, to, to worship, to have Bibles, to share the gospel. Um, uh, I've been to China a few times. We uh, in in Budapest. I pastored a Chinese church. We started it six years or so ago, and it grew to sixty people or so. Lots of Chinese immigrants and amazing work of God. And through that, we connected to a pastor of 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 an underground church in uh, China. And his church, an underground meaning, it's not the recognized state church where the, where the pastors are often appointed by the state, in some cases not even believers, although that's, I hear that's changing now. Uh, the underground church meaning just the non-official church that meet in people's homes. Um, and uh, they rent these huge apartments with the biggest rooms that they can find and they cram 100, 200. His church is up to 300 people now. And um, they cannot meet legally. Uh, and yet they do. Um, they cannot preach. They cannot be teaching and preaching the Bible or taking offerings or having prayer meetings, and yet they do. Uh, they cannot have foreigners go and visit them, and yet they, they do. And wh- I went over there, and we went, the whole church, 300-plus people, we went up into the mountains away from the city where it's a bit quieter, a bit safer, and we had conferences up there. And uh, we preached and taught and day and night, just hours and hours, just thinking you're going to drop. And they just wanted to hear more and more and more. And we, I did that two different times. And then after my second visit, the church had a, had a, a knock on the door from the authorities and said, uh, and they know the church exists. You know, of course, they know every church that's, that's meeting. But they say, as long as you stay within these boundaries, we'll leave you alone. And uh, they said, oh, you, you, know, you, you know, how much are you taking in the offering and how many foreigners do you have visit here and you can't, you can't meet. And they started giving them, you can't meet with this many people and you can't have any more non-Chinese people here and things like that. So they've they, they got people breathing down their neck right now. You can pray, pray for them. So anyway, they came back to their companions and they told them that what had happened. And um, what an incredible story that would have been. So, verse 24. So when they heard that, those that were gathered, when they heard Peter and John rehearse the whole story to them, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made the heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them. Incredible. This response of faith and prayer and praise uh, in, in the shadow of this high court and authority and this persecution and resistance, 
they are looking to the ultimate authority. God's, God's realizing that God is in control. We're going to see a similar thing in the next chapter when the apostles, Peter and the apostles, are again before the Sanhedrin. It says when in verse 41, when they departed from the presence of the council, they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. That's quite a verse, isn't it? They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. It's quite something. So they say, look at what they say, Lord, you are God. And this is a this is how, by the way, they, they start this prayer to God. And this is a beautiful way to start prayer. A focus being brought before they start requesting anything. There is just a recognition of who God is and what he's able to do and what he's done. It helps us have the right vision for God, not to just launch straight into our requests, but to magnify him, to praise him. I think... Uh, uh, to worship him to, and of course to pray to him but perhaps prayer should begin with worship and worship should begin with prayer and it, there should be a mix of it in our hearts as we draw near to God and we see that happening here in this beautiful we don't know how many people but this beautiful little corporate celebration in recognizing that God was, was working verse 25 who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. This is a quote from, oh, where did I go? From Psalm 2. He's quoting, they're, they're, they're recognizing, reflecting on this psalm. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing against the Lord and against his anointed? And of course, the anointed one, that's what Christ means, the Christ. So here they take this and they, they recognize that um, there may be plans and, and uh, counsel and plots against the work of God, the person of God, or even against the Christ himself. And yet, the gates of hell will not prevail. God will still uh, come victorious. Verse 27. For truly against your holy servant, and look at, look at, again, look at the connection, against the Lord and against his anointed or against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, that's the Christ, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before you to be done. Now, we've got to hit the pause button right there and think about what they're saying. It is incredible insight and understanding that they have. They're able to look back to the trials and the, the rejection of Christ, the trials of Christ, the condemnation of Christ, the crucifixion of the Messiah. They're able to look back and say, whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. They're realizing that God is not divorced from this. He's in this. He has brought this to play, to fruition. It was even predicted and prophesied that it would happen and uh, it was on God's timetable, God's plan. They're saying, this is not an accident. 
to you. This is not taking you by surprise. And what's happening to us, they would be saying here. What happened to Peter and John today, it's not an accident. We are not outnumbered. You are with us. You know what's happening. What an incredible perspective to have right in the face of being persecuted. It could be hard for us to imagine to have that boldness and that faith. But when you are in that situation, God will give you grace. God will give you the words. God said to them, remember Matthew 10, 20, when the hour comes, you will know what to say. Maybe now you don't know. Maybe now you don't think you have the boldness or the faith. Or, but when the hour comes, there will be grace for you. I will be with you. And that's what they're realizing, that God is with, with them in this. Verse 29, Now, Lord, look on their, to their threats and grant your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. Now, notice this. After hearing Peter and John's account, one thing that they were noticing, just like the Sanhedrin realized, was the boldness that Peter and John spoke in. The the Sanhedrin were amazed when they saw the boldness of them, the authority, the confidence, the freedom, not intimidated or insecure, but but just bold. And when they're hearing the story, the, 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 the other believers are thinking, wow, you said that, the boldness. So when they prayed... This is what they pray for. Lord, will you grant us that we may speak with boldness? And we love the prayer because we all also sense that insecurity, that we are a little bit feeble, and we wouldn't want to go and stand before the Sanhedrin and preach Christ, or or maybe even to a little old lady on the street. It's intimidating for us. But what an amazing prayer. Lord, give us boldness. You know, Lord, that I I have fears, but could you give me faith and confidence and boldness? They've just been told by the Sanhedrin, you better not speak in his name anymore. What do they pray for? Or give us boldness that we may speak in your name all the more. What an amazing prayer. They asked for power to do what they were just told that they should not do. Oh, don't let us be quiet just because of their threats, they're saying. But give us boldness that we may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And again, part of the boldness that Peter had was was also reflected by the fact that there had been this miraculous healing that could not be denied. So they're praying, Lord, give us boldness by stretching forth your hand and doing wonders and miracles that signs would accompany the preaching. And we mentioned this in regards to last week, unfortunately, which wasn't recorded for your ears only, uh, that those signs were given to validate the messenger and the message. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And look at what it says. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. That's quite a quick answer to prayer, isn't it? Lord, that we may speak your word in boldness. And then when they had prayed, the place was shaken. They were filled with the Spirit and they spoke the word with boldness. 
beautiful answer to prayer there. It doesn't say they spoke in languages. There wasn't a sign gift that was needed here. These were all disciples and believers. There's no sign gift needed. But just an answer to prayer. They were filled with the Spirit and what? They spoke the word in boldness. That's what it says. Verse 32. And now the multitude of those who believe were of one heart, one soul. Neither did anyone say that that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And we're we're coming to the end here. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold. Now, um, the tenses of the verbs here imply that, that this was happening from one person, one time, another time. Someone was moved with faith and love, not obligated, not told to do it, but decided to help their fellow brothers. Um, remember, there were thousands of people here in the early church in Jerusalem. Uh, perhaps some had stayed over after being saved. Uh, They traveled for the feast and then their life changed and they said, I'm staying in Jerusalem, nowhere to live, no funds. So the the church there decided to help each other. It was a very unique uh, circumstance. So they're sharing assets to meet the needs of the people. Um, This isn't a a precedent for church life um, that you would depend on the church to provide your needs or have an expectation for other brothers to meet your needs. Paul later teaches, if you don't work, you don't eat. He teaches the right ethical, the the right work ethic. Um, But but this was a very unique situation. Um, And it was clear that the hearts of the people here were right. Last last verses. So they uh, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and they laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, or Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, this very short introduction of this man, this is a very important man going forward in the book of Acts, Barnabas. It's beautiful to note that it's the apostles that gave him the name Barnabas. We love that because it was obviously recognizing his character, the son of encouragement. Barnabas is a guy you would want in your life, in your church, on your team. You would want to have Barnabas. You would want to spend time with Barnabas because just a few minutes with Barnabas and you would be encouraged, right? Um, it's this Barnabas we're going to read about who, when, when Saul of Tarsus gets converted, it's Barnabas. We can imagine this was a man who saw the potential in, in, in people, who, who, who would all, want to believe the best, give the benefit of the doubt, and rec- had a recognition on, on, on uh, the hand of God on someone's life, etc. He was the one who brought Saul to the apostles. And when Saul was sent to Tarsus, it was Barnabas who went to seek Saul and brought him back to Antioch. Um, And all through Paul's journeys, well, not all through, but but through those 
pages on the, uh, of, of Paul's journeys, we read the words, and Paul and Barnabas, and Paul and Barnabas, and Paul and Barnabas. And as we'll see, we, we can assume, or we can speculate, with holy speculation, that um, it was, well, we know that it was the Holy Spirit who said in Acts 13 too, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas. God knew that Paul needed Barnabas with him on those, on those journeys, someone who would be encouraging him all the way. But here is the first mention of Barnabas. And what is he doing? He's, he's selfish, selflessly giving to provide for the, for the needs of the church there. Now, this sets the stage for a sad stain of sin that is going to be seen on the early church in the next chapter, namely with Ananias and Sapphira. Um, but I don't want to give it away. No, I know you know the story. But anyway, let's be reading. And there's no spoilers, no spoilers, no. No, read uh, chapter 5 and, and we'll see. But this is the backdrop. Barnabas has just beautifully made this pure expression of love and there is a, um, a deceitful imitation of that which is made as an example to, uh, to instruct the early church. So we'll be reading Acts uh, 5 this week and let's pray. So Father, thank you for this time tonight, this, this uh, walk through Acts chapter 4 together. Thank you. Uh, for just the principles in it. We pray, as perhaps we read it again, that you would bring things to the surface, bring things to light, and teach us and use it to lead us in our faith and our convictions. And um, we pray that you would bless these truths to our hearts richly and bless us now as we go in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, any uh, closing questions? Yeah, well, again, the Sadducees were, were a minority religious uh, group, although they had a lot of influence over the temple operations. And the Pharisees were teachers of the law. Um, they, the, again, the Sadducees only really believed the books of Moses. They were, perhaps you could say, they were more like the liberals, the, the liberal theologians of today. The Pharisees were much more strict according to every letter of the law. So they were both... Um, uh, religious groups um, within Judaism, both of which Jesus had conflict with, but they had, were a little bit in different camps. Like the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection, the Sadducees didn't. Uh, Paul later uses that to his advantage when he's before the group and he realizes, oh, there's Sadducees and there's Pharisees. So he says, I'm just here because I believe in the resurrection. <laughs> and then he sets back and they, they're at each other and then he's, he, he gets to leave. So um, well, they don't believe in spirits. I, I think they would believe in the Holy Spirit, in, in the Spirit of God, in terms of the books of Moses in the Old Testament. The Spirit came on the waters, so they believed in the Spirit of God, yeah. Okay, anyone else? Yes, sir. Yeah. No 
It's incredible to think of how many Christians are still, you know, dying for their faith. You know, not hundreds or thousands, but tens of thousands, ninety thousand. You know, that's just 2016, very recent. It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, God can turn turn whole nations and countries, open doors, bring down kings, and set up other kings, and He does that. Yeah, I don't know the exact circumstances of that persecution, but yeah. Well, I suspect that they Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, if you look, extreme persecution is in the red right there in the, in the Middle East. Ironically, the countries that completely surround Israel. Uh, it's quite something. Yeah. Well, China, and of course... The numbers come into play because it's 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 the most it's populated country. But there's more Chinese people coming to Christ every day than any other. And someone might say, "Well, that's because there's so many." Okay, but it doesn't change the fact that there are so many Chinese people getting saved every day. That it's it's incredible. Uh, you know, as I told you, I, I know people working there in the in the ministry, and they just don't know what to do. They, they, he he has to put limits. On, on what he can do as a pastor and how many people can meet because there's it's, it's just so such a need there. Incredible. Okay. Anyone else? Oh. As they say in uh, Hungary, kursenem, kursenem. Thank you. All right. Okay. Amen. Let's go.